Welcome to the Da Vinci Hour, a podcast series that interviews individuals across the field of medicine to help provide an inside look into their experiences and provide insight on how to navigate the journey of becoming a physician. My name is Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, a medical education company that provides online video courses, outline format books, and clinical case videos for students studying the medical basic sciences. You can check out all that Da Vinci Academy has to offer at www.dviacademy.com. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Da Vinci Hour podcast. I am joined this week by Professor John Banja at Emory University. Uh, John, thanks for joining us. Happy to have you here. My pleasure, Maxwell. Good to be with you. Awesome. Awesome. So before we dive into it, maybe give the listeners a little bit of background on your, you know, uh, professional career, your research interests, your professional interests, and, and uh, kind of how that's led up to what we're talking about today, which is some ethical issues with AI and, and how I, AI will be looked at in the years to come. Sure, sure. So um, I originally uh, wanted to get a doctorate degree in philosophy. Uh, my uh, career plans were just to be a a philosophy professor at some college or university and uh, talk about Aristotle and Plato for the rest of my life. Uh, didn't work out that way. I was not able to get a full-time uh, position in philosophy. got a lot of part-time jobs, but no full-time. And I wound up at a little Catholic college called St. Francis College, now St. Francis University. Uh, and this was in the late 1970s. And uh, I was running a program called Upward Bound, which is which still exists, by the way, it's for low income high school students. Oh, wow. And uh, um, but but I I really wanted a career as an academic, as a professor. And they were starting at St. Francis College, a a physician assistant program, and uh, they wanted someone to teach medical ethics. And after about two years of a fruitless job search, uh, I decided that I'd better retrain. Uh, so I volunteered to do it. And uh, I think when I was in graduate school, I don't think I ever read a single article in, uh, in medical ethics. Uh, so uh, I volunteered to do it. I'm reading these articles along with the students. I'm teaching this course. And um, that was my foray into, into the world of medical ethics. And goodness gracious, the Karen Quinlan case. And by the way, you can't talk to medical students today about Karen Quinlan. They have no idea who she is. Uh, that Karen Quinlan case occurred in 1976. So this was pretty progressive uh, 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 for St. Francis College to uh, want someone to teach medical ethics. So I, I did that. And then I went to a rehabilitation hospital in Pittsburgh, the Harmerville Rehabilitation Hospital, 1981. Um, uh, again, not with any uh, full-time uh, employment in philosophy. I was uh, working in the education department, but this was a rehab hospital that specialized in neurological rehabilitation, stroke and brain injury and spinal cord injury. And I realized that there were lots of ethical issues uh, going on there. And I stayed there for two years and got to Emory in 83. And by the time I got to Emory, I uh, uh, started to write some stuff on ethical issues in disability and acute uh, neurological rehabilitation. Uh, Emory was very, very kind to me. And I started to meet people because in the early mid 80s, um, that's when uh, bioethics was starting to happen on the Emory campus. John Stone, Kathy Kinlaw, and those folks were ramping up bioethics 
and I managed to meet them and join them in their in their efforts. Um, and I uh, joined the Ethics Center uh, in uh, uh, with a part-time position in the early 1990s, and then I joined full-time in uh, in the year 2000. So for for about half of my career, I was teaching just kind of bread and butter uh, courses in bioethics. You know, talking to students, medical students. We ha- we have a, a doctorate in physical therapy program at Emory, teaching those students about you know informed consent, privacy, confidentiality, managed care, end of life, all that kind of uh, that kind of stuff. And then around the year 2000, uh, I was, I remember I was giving a lecture, uh, at a medical conference on empathic communications. I was very interested in, uh, difficult, emotionally painful communications. And, uh, I heard a speaker, Richard Cook, uh, right after me, give a talk on medical errors. Like I say, this was around 19, maybe it wasn't even 2000 yet. Maybe it was 1998, 1999. And I was absolutely mesmerized by this talk. I'd never heard about medical errors and how they happen and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and here I was in the audience and I'm, I'm interested in conducting emotionally painful communications. And I'm thinking to myself, holy smokes, when a physician commits a medical error, I mean, do you disclose that to the patient? That's got to be one of the most emotionally wrenching, painful experiences, especially if it's a serious harm causing error that you can have. Uh, so I started to uh, read the literature. I was incredibly lucky to uh, join a grant effort by the Georgia Hospital Association. They applied for a grant to the uh, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Got it. And for about three and a half years, uh, I was reimbursed 50% of my time by this grant to just study medical errors, write about them, uh, travel across the country and talk about them at medical conference. I mean, it was a scholar's dream for heaven's sakes. Um, and that's what I did for about two decades. And then around 2016, 2017, uh, I'm starting to read about this AI stuff. And this was kind of a natural segue because AI is being touted as, well, it's going to be better than human beings. It's going to reduce error frequency and error severity. Uh, and by the way, if you're a medical student and you're thinking about a residency in radiology, you're absolutely nuts. You need to you have your brain exam. This is like I say, 2016, <laughs> 2017. And that's how I got into AI. And that's what I've been doing the last the last five years studying uh, AI and all of its uh, uh, twists and its uh, its its dimensions. So um, I've been in Emory now for, uh, 40 years, and it has just been a wonderful, wonderful experience for me. I'll, I'll tell you, I have had very, very few bad days. It's just been a great ride. I've been I've been blessed. That's awesome. I mean, that's it's a fascinating kind of journey, if you will, to along. Yeah. I mean, health, as you know, healthcare is ripe with ethical dilemmas and issues. And it's fascinating how you've kind of made your way through kind of, it almost seems like the full gamut in a way. And then now to, and what's interesting is you've always seemed to kind of be on the, on the cutting edge of that, if you will. And even obviously displayed most recently by, you know, looking at AI and it's, it's uh, future even concerns, if you will. Yeah. I, I, I constantly remark to people that there's never a dull moment in, in, in what I do. I mean, there's always some, this remarkable thing that comes along. I'll tell you that that medical errors have kind of, oh, what would be the word, kind of diminished in terms of their grip, their hold on 
healthcare delivery systems, especially 20 years ago when I got inter interested in around 2000. For those first 10 years, I was traveling all over the United States, giving lots and lots of talks. And the last 10 years, things have kind of calmed down. And then what happened? The Redonda Vought case happened in Vanderbilt, you know, and I'm talking to uh, a lot of my radiology buddies right now, and they're talking about how that case has had quite a chilling effect uh, on, on them. I mean, something that we might talk about, you might talk about in a future podcast is I'm interested in how radiologists, because they get sued fairly often, see that the, oftentimes the environment in which they work is a hostile one. You know, there's always somebody looking over their shoulder, look at that plaintiff lawyer, looking at that error, you know, is this an error? Might that be an error? And so this Redonda Vought case where this nurse now is, uh, uh, was prosecuted for a, a criminal act, not, not, not just a, something in tort, but a criminal act. Uh, you know, my, my radiology colleagues are telling me, John, that is going to put quite a chilling effect on a physician, on a clinician's intention to be truthful and honest with, uh, uh, with, the, with the patient, especially when an error has uh, has gone down and I, I, I kind of think they're right. I think you know this is going to rekindle uh, the emotions around medical errors and, and how you folks are going to handle them. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I'm curious, you know you, you spent a lot of time on medical errors. Was that always in radiology or was that were there oh, other, no. other areas of medicine as well? Like, no, no. obviously I mean, like they're, surgi they're, they're, they're just errors, all like over that. the place. Yeah. But, but you know the, the thing with radiology, I mean, it seems to me that radiology is the diagnostic heart of a hospital or a, or a clinic, you know? I mean, and consequently, and so many errors are of a diagnostic variety. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense because when you make a wrong diagnosis, whether it's the radiologist, whether it's the internist, whomever it is, that has a kind, that's a kind of an upstream error when you think about it, because it will then follow the patient through his or her journey through the healthcare uh, uh, arena. And if that diagnosis is a wrong one, boy, it might take weeks, it might take months, it might take years before that original diagnostic error is discovered and things are set right. And of course, sometimes they're not set right because you've lost that opportunity to go in and fix that disease entity uh, uh, early on. And now, you know, months, maybe years have passed. I mean, you know, in, in, in your work, the typical instance would be the missed uh, mammogram, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the missed lesion, you, know, you, you didn't pick it up the first time the patient comes back two years later. Holy smokes, there's a big lesion there. You're, you're curious. No way that lesion could have gotten so big in a year or two. You go back, you look at the uh, earlier mammogram. Holy smokes, there it is. Do I tell the patient or, uh, or not? Uh, and uh, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, ethics would say, of course you do. Of course you should. But the practical reality is, is, is much more difficult. Yeah, definitely. I imagine that a um, couple of things there. I think one, I imagine the ethical concern, and then obviously what you said is the practicality. I definitely want to talk about that with you in a second, but I think I would just comment as far as radiologists go, you know, it's, it's interesting, even though we don't have the patient contact, like direct patient contact that many right. special, other specialties have, we do play a surprisingly very integral role in the, you know, not just the diagnostic aspect, but then the management, what you do from right. that, you know, yeah. like you said, like if, 
if you don't see any, you know, on a mammogram, if you don't see anything, then it's, you know, assuming there's nothing else you're watching, then it's, you know, you follow your annual screen and you will see in a year kind of thing. Um, unless you feel, unless the woman notices something in the interim and, you know, these are critical and these are people's lives. These aren't, you know, just thing, you know, kind of academic exercises, if you will. And so, absolutely. um, so yeah, no, I think you hit on some really important points there. I'm curious what you, how, what, how do you handle And maybe it's a case by case basis, but I, I, what's ethically or what you supposed, supposed to do. And then obviously there's these, you know, unfortunately, as you know, in healthcare, and as we'll probably get more into in a, in a minute here is there's a lot of players involved. There's the right. hospital, there's the providers, obviously there's the insurance companies or the payers, whoever that is, you know, whether it's Medicare insurance, things like that. And then, you know, uh, any, you know, medical equipment suppliers, all those types of things, I guess, how do you, in your view, navigate that, if you will, in certain yeah. situations. Yeah. How do you how do you kind of apportion out that liability when you have so many so many players? Uh, I'll tell you, and I know we talked about this antecedently, and uh, uh, with AI, <laughs> that's going to be one heck of a problem. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, because if the if you get a bad outcome and there was an error that happened somewhere along the along the way, my God, you got the hardware manufacturer, you got a half dozen people who are putting the algorithm together. You got the people who compiled the data training set, who curated it. Uh, then you got the hospital who have to maintain the system, and then you got the radiologist, and you have all you know all all, all of all of those folks. I mean, figuring out who's liable for what, and I, I know we're going to talk about this in a couple of minutes. I mean, that could be that could be a heck of a chore. Let me tell you though that coming back to like I say, this atmosphere of hostility that some of my radiology friends have told me about. Uh, you know, if we're going to uh, uh, meet that head on and if we're going to try to do what's right by the patient and if we're going to practice patient centered care and if we're going to be ethical and transparent, I will tell you, you absolutely need an organization that's going to stand behind you, that's going to support you, that's going to inform you as to how to navigate that that very difficult conversation that you're going to have with that patient or family. Uh, And like I say, who's going to support you every step of the way? Because if you feel that your organization is just going to hang you out to dry, it ain't going to work. It's not going to work. I mean, the incentives will all be lined up on the side of concealment. So you know, that, I, I think it really starts there. It starts with an informed, ethically committed organization. Risk managers can be your best friends, really, in something like this. Although risk, the risk manager does not want to accompany you when you go into that room to talk to that patient or family, maybe better to have a chaplain, maybe to have a, a, a social worker or somebody who's good in empathic communications or something uh, something like that. Uh, but, you know, I, I must say, uh, Maxwell, that when I uh, talk to our medical students at Emory and I show them scenarios, uh, here's this error that went down. Would you tell the patient or not? God bless them. I mean, 99% of them say, yes, I would, I would tell them. Now, whether they actually are going to do that, you know, when they're attendings, I don't know. But at, at least, at least that says to me that they're being trained in an atmosphere of transparency and patient centeredness. And they know that if I lie and holy smokes, if the lie is found out, uh, that will have ruined the therapeutic alliance and 
interestingly enough, at least now, I, I, and I, I, I've been teaching this now for at least a decade, medical errors and stuff to our medical students, they are a very good will. Uh, they are really patient-centered and they are into honesty and transparency. God bless them all. And it says something really great, you know, too, about uh, our, our, our contemporary medical environment, because I'll tell you, 30, 40 years ago, when I got into this stuff, the physicians were told exactly the opposite. Do not disclose an error. Do not apologize. In fact, don't even talk to these people. If an error went down, have them talk to our hospital lawyer or our risk manager or something like that. It was, it was just totally different. That was an atmosphere of concealment uh, as opposed to what we're experiencing today. Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting uh, change in healthcare that you comment on because I think healthcare, you know, as you know, used to be much more paternalistic view, if you will, or was the doctor was always right. You always did what the doctor yeah. said. And now patients are becoming, you know, much, as you know, much, much more involved in their own right. care and, you know, much more, more like participants in their care, if you will, than just, yep. you know, following the doctor's orders. And so, you know, disclosing, you know, what happened, that's kind of maybe part of the symbiotic relationship, if you will, that's kind of how the physician patient patient relationship has evolved. And, I, it's funny you say, I remember a story. It wasn't so much an error, but I remember in medical school, I believe it was, I witnessed, I was, you know, on a rotation observing a cardiac surgery and a patient coded on the table before they even really got anything going. And I remember they did, you know, compressions and everything, and they brought the patient back. Thankfully, we were able to start the procedure. And so really, you know, did the procedure, procedure went fine. So at the end of the day, at least in the short term, from what I saw is there was no direct harm done, if right, you will. Right, 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 right. But I remember very distinctly the cardiac surgeon sitting down with the family and telling them exactly what happened uh -huh. and, and being very upfront, you know, this is, you know, this could have been, you know, could have gone a, a much different way. And he goes, especially if, you know, he goes, he, what he was very candid about was thankfully this happened in the OR, you know, which yes. is kind of interesting. He goes, optimal if, code situation, right, right. If this had happened yeah. out Thank you know, on, at home, yeah. he goes, you probably wouldn't have made it. And so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I just thought was so interesting because you could have easily concealed, he could have easily concealed that he could have easily just kept that, you know, either just documented what happened and not really told the family about it. But I think he, I could tell he felt like a moral obligation to tell them that that it, had actually It happened. also speaks to what you just said about the informed patient, because lots of patients, they will request their medical records. And, you know, if they read that, that, that OR note and see, Holy smokes, <laughs> I went into cardiac arrest for yeah. that sake in the yeah. operation. And he yeah. never told me, you know. Right, uh, right. I mean, they might they might have another heart attack. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so you know, you don't want any you don't want the patient to be surprised, you know. Sure. And and I mean, even if you don't have a moral molecule in your body, uh, you know, that possibility that they might find this out. Uh, and you don't want them to find it out on their own. You want to be the first to to, uh, to tell them that. That's that. Uh, that's that's something that every physician should appreciate. Sure, definitely. I want to before we really get into, it, I want to just give you a chance to tell the listeners about. You have your own podcast, which I've I've listened to. That is really right. Yeah. Uh, so maybe tell us tell us a little bit about that podcast. How you got started doing that? I know you've had uh, you won a grant for it, which is really yeah commendable, and and, and I congratulate you on that. That's awesome. And. Uh, Kind of what your mission has been with this podcast that you've developed. Yeah, so uh, your your colleague who is now taking over the chairmanship at the University of uh, Mississippi, Rich Duzak. Uh, Rich and I got to be buddies about five years ago, and uh, Rich uh, called me up once and said, uh, 
John, uh, there is a foundation in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's called the Advanced Radiology Services Foundation. And I have gotten some money uh, from them. They're a kind of a progressive uh, uh, entity that likes to think about uh, what's right around the next curve. They especially are interested in uh, healthcare policy. And, you know, I think if you would write a, pro a proposal, uh, and maybe uh, uh, talk about uh, what you're interested in in the intersection of ethics and uh, artificial intelligence, tie it into radiology. Uh, I, I think they might be interested in it. So that's what I did. And lo and behold, they gave me a very nice grant. Uh, and so what I have been doing uh, with, uh, with that money is uh, I set up one of the things is I set up my own podcast uh, uh, page uh, and uh, have interviewed a lot of luminaries uh, uh, in the field. I've, uh, I've interviewed people like Melissa Chen and uh, uh, Bib Allen, Geraldine McGinty, uh, uh, Mike Bruno, uh, Carolyn uh, Meltzer from your own department. Um, so we're, we're interested in talking about, like I say, ethics and AI and, uh, and radiology, uh, very, uh, uh, oh, Chuck Kahn, I, I should have mentioned him as, uh, uh, as well, uh, I, because I just thought that one of the ethical areas that I'm very interested in is uh, implementing these technologies into the hospital or the clinic. I mean, when you decide that uh, some model has gotten good enough that you're going to uh, integrated into your own radiologic workflow. Uh, that's not going to be something that you can do over a weekend. Uh, so, I mean, there are all these considerations about how good that, that how good that model needs to be, what kind of contractual relationship you're going to have with the vendor, uh, especially when it comes to liability issues, um, and then you know upkeep issues, uh, upgrading the algorithm, and all these kinds of things. So, uh, there's a lot of I think ethical issues uh, uh, there. So. So at any rate, we explore those kinds of issues. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm very interested uh, in how the hype that uh, was swirling around five, four or five years ago, again, you know, where you radiologists are going to be out of a job, blah, 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 uh, how that has not materialized at all. As a matter of fact, a lot of the literature that I've been reading over the last 12 months has been directed to exactly that. How come this hype has not materialized the way it has? As a matter of fact, what we're finding out is that it's much, much more difficult <laughs> to develop these algorithms so, such that they're accurate and generalizable, much, much more difficult than we thought. So I, I, I think from what I'm reading that radiologists, even the computer scientists are saying, I don't think it's gonna be for at least another five, maybe not another 10 years when we start developing models that are going to be as good as the Dr. Coopers of the world are, you know, are now. So I think you guys are safe for a, a long time. So I'm interested in that right now. You know, uh, uh, how come these models are not as accurate, are not as generalizable as we thought that they were going to be three, four, five, uh, uh, five years ago? So uh, like I say, uh, Maxwell, is just never a dull moment. I'll echo, I've listened to some of your episodes and you, you certainly have some of the, the giants in the field of radiology, that's for sure on there. And uh, some of the, I think, you know, cutting some of the 
leading minds, if you will, in both radio. Yeah. And, some of the movers and the shakers. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I recommend everybody out there uh, with any kind Thank of in, interest in, in the AI to, to take a listen to it for sure. Podcasting is a, it's a great way to, you know, get involved with these people and then also get their opinions. So that's, that's awesome. You know, it's a great way of networking. I mean, yes, it's a great absolutely. way of, of, of meeting <laughs> some of the leaders in, uh, uh, in the field. Uh, and of course I learn, I learn a lot too. So, uh, I, I guess the great problem with podcasting now is there's there's so doggone many of them out yeah. there. You know, everybody's doing a podcast. So uh absolutely. So kind of diving into it a little bit, you know, we're for, also for the listeners, and we'll put the link for this as well. Your paper in the Journal of American College of Radiology or JACR right. is a great paper. I recommend uh folks check it out. But I think you know, you talk about when the ethical dilemma of when AI does reach that point of outperforming. Uh, the clinician, if you will. And, and I think specifically you focus in on radiologists uh, ability to, you know, identify right. pathology and diagnose it and then make management recommendations based on that. I guess I'm curious, first off, how do you look at when the phys- when it's able to outperform the radiologist? Is, is there tiers to that? Is it, you know, maybe, you know, they're able to identify the more obvious pathology that, you know, who the junior radiology resident could identify uh-huh. versus like, you know, they're more, or they're able to, you know, reach that tier of outperforming in the sense of identifying the rare, very complex pathology as well. Right. Right. So, uh, so the way I see it, and that's a great question. Um, uh, uh, the, the way I see it, uh, number one, uh, we're going to have to have a baseline of error rates among the ordinary, reasonable, prudent, Human radiologist going to have that some kind of baseline. How how, how what's your error frequency? Uh, because we're going to have to compare how the how well the AI does with those with with that with that sort of thing. Um, and and then once once we have that, I would imagine the first uh, uh, metric would be well, actually our uh, mammography AI because they're all going to be specific, right? I mean, one's going to look at mammograms, another one's going to look at glioblastomas, another one's going to look at COVID lungs. They're all going to look at at some particular focal entity. Uh, Well, uh, 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 we tested our model uh, and uh, it's it's just as accurate, if not more accurate than the the 50 board certified radiologists that we we recruited. So, all right, so so then we have so we have that. Now I think your question is really interesting. Then in terms of well, uh, let's say we're going to look at a bunch of routine screening mammograms. Now we know that ninety eight percent of them are negative to begin with, right? So what are we going to do when the algorithm says, Doctor Cooper, I have looked at all this big batch of screening mammograms that you're supposed to look at today. And I can, uh, I've, I've prioritized them. So uh, this batch over here, uh, I can tell you with 99.99999% confidence is true negative. Absolutely. In fact, you don't even have to look at these. These, uh, you don't even have to look at them. Now, these other ones, this one, these look kind of peculiar. You need to look at those. And these right here, you really need to look at these. So I have a hunch, you know, we're going to see uh, your work being prioritized. And, you know, if it really comes out, if these models are going to be as accurate as we hope they are going to be, uh, I hope 
that that will be a boon for you because it's going to be save you a heck of a lot of time, especially uh, on that maybe 40, 50 percent of those uh, routine screen, uh, uh, mammograms that are they're true negatives. You don't have to look at, at, at these at these at all. That's going to be an enormous time saving uh, uh, element for you. What I worry about, though, is that AI is going to open up radiologic services for the rest of the world. Uh, the, the rest of the world, so many people not having access to good radiology services. I mean, I'm talking about on the other side of the world. So I'm wondering if on the one hand, you know, you might say, well, that'll free my time up to look at these significant images, uh, but are you just simply gonna find your own workload dramatically increased because now we can send you images from all over the world, you know, for, you know, for you to, to you uh, look at. So I, I, I kind of worry about how your own time is going to be measured out uh, uh, and, you know, whether you can enjoy your work or whether you're just going to be uh, overwhelmed by it. So, but that's how I, I, that would be my looking into the crystal ball right now, that it's going to be, AI is going to help prioritize your, your work. And hopefully, 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 it's not only going to reduce error frequency and error severity, because, but if it does, it should reduce malpractice litigation, which should translate into reduced medical malpractice insurance premiums for you. So that's the hope. Fingers are crossed. That's the hope. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I think, yeah, I think you hit on some really important points there. I think, you know, I had, as you know, I had uh, Dr. Hari Trivedi on the podcast a few episodes yeah. ago. And, mm -hmm. you know, for those of you listeners that aren't aware, didn't catch that one. He's a, you know, emergency radiologist here at Emory, but also a heavily involved in AI research and developing, you know, databases for developing AI algorithms and things like that. Uh, that he runs with Dr. Judy Gachoya, who's an IR physician and also informatics and an AI expert as well. Uh, and he talked about it was it was an interesting comparison he made when with adopting AI. And he he talked about what you're referencing when people said that it was going to replace radiologists and what's the point of training radiologists anymore. He likened it to back when you know radiologists read actual real film, you know, yeah, uh, you know, films that they hung up in the in the reading room and things yeah. like that. And he said, you know, there, there were radiologists who adapted with, with the new electronic packs and with the new electronic images, and there were ones who didn't. <laughs> and so he likened it to that where AI will kind yeah. of be more a tool we use, just like how electronic records are, you know, a tool we use, not so much replacing us. But he did mention some of the things you're talking about where it'll maybe help us cut down on more arduous tasks or, mm -hmm. you know, my, you know mind numbing, if you will, or, or right. less, more monotonous tasks, if you will, that to help and really help, like you said, reduce errors, mm -hmm. um, not just, you know, make our job more, maybe more enjoyable, but, or easier, but also to help and more importantly, uh, you know, make sure those aren't missed or things that, you know, you know, cause we all, it, we're all human. We can get tired. We can get, you know, fatigued or rushed for some external pressure for some reason. And unfortunately miss things, as you mentioned, uh, time to time. So, Hopefully yeah, I can help with that. <laughs> and, and, and if it if it does play out the way we're describing it, 
the the worry that a lot of radiologists have about the de-skilling phenomenon, in other words, that your own skills are going to erode as these models get better and better and better, and they relieve you of so much of the, of the workload, that won't happen. As a matter of fact, your skills should get better uh, because you're only going to be looking at these problematic uh, uh, images, and that should sharpen, you know, your own critical scrutiny uh, and your and your acumen. So, I mean, your work might get much, much more interesting, uh, you know, uh, given that. Yeah, no, I can agree. I mean, I think one of the benefits of training at Emory is is we see a lot of complex, but we see a lot of yeah, kind of bread and butter pathology, but we see a lot of very complex pathology, as you know, and so that I think definitely makes the the training experience uh, certainly much better. Um, so yeah, I would echo that for sure. And I, I could see where that would more of our time would be spent on those more complex right. cases that need maybe a little bit more attention. Right. Um, right. So yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Start us off here, maybe with a scenario, you, it's similar to what you've talked about in your paper. So let's say, you know, an AI out model is able to, you know, identify small, you know, pulmonary nodules or small developing tumors at or better the rate of the average uh, radiologist. Let's say a patient has a small thing, it's a small nodule, it's not detected by, you know, the AI algorithm, it develops in a cancer, like you were talking about on a follow-up form, kind of maybe dive into what's, who is liable and kind of what's at play. Cause like we were talking about, there's the AI algorithm or the, you should say the maker, yeah. you could say the coder is maybe liable. You could say the people who ran the trial, uh, you know, to, to run give FDA approval, it's in a way there's many different parties involved. And then obviously the radiologists, if you will. Yeah. So, so uh, the scenario then, and we, we have to be uh, careful about the scenarios because different scenarios result in different kinds of litigious uh, uh, approaches. So in this particular scenario, you're saying that the model missed this particular lung nodule, let's say. Yes. Okay. So um, if that model uh is up to virtually a standard of care kind of model. And if that model um, is a second or a first or a second read for you, and you, let's say you missed it too. Mm -hmm. yes. Let's just say you missed it too. So there's two misses. Um, the fact of the matter is, I would think, be interesting to get a plaintiff lawyer's opinion on this, by the way, but I would think if you and a standard of care model both missed this lesion. You know what? Maybe God would miss that lesion too, for heaven's sakes. And if that's the case, we are not, despite how you guys feel, I know it, I get it, despite how you guys feel that you're under a kind of strict liability standpoint where you got to detect everyone, you have to be divine, you have to be godlike. As a matter of fact, that is not what the standard of care requires you to be. The standard of care simply requires you to behave at a competency level that an ordinary, reasonable, prudent radiologist in like or similar circumstances would perform. That's it. So there you go. You missed it. The model missed it. I, I think that you would have a considerable defense there. Now, Maxwell, things get interesting when the model says, you know what? I think there's something here, something that you need to look at. You look at it. You say, nah, I don't think there's a... And we go according to what Dr. Cooper recommends, and there's a bad outcome. 
the interesting thing is going to happen when you disagree with that sure. with that model, right? So in in my case, the model says maybe do you should do X. You say nah, I'm not going to do X. You're wrong, and you have a bad outcome. Patient can sue you. Patient can simply say, hey, this model obviously knew something you didn't. Right. Yeah. So and 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 you should have gone with this with this model. On the other hand, take the uh, take 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 the alternative case. Again, you disagree with uh, with the model, but even though you disagree with it, you're going to comply with what the model tells you to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's a bad outcome. Patient's going to sue you again. Right. The patient's going to say, "Do you mean to say?" that you left my medical fate up to a machine? You know, you're a human being, doctor, and blah, 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 right? So the patient can get you actually either way. Um, uh, so that's, uh, I think, Maxwell, that's what we're going to have to think about. Fortunately, we got some time to think about it because we're nowhere near importing these models in a clinical treatment capacity. We're nowhere near that yet. So we got some time to think about how we can protect your liability, especially in instances where you disagree with the model. And unfortunately, there is a suboptimal uh, outcome. I think you make a, a very interesting point. You know, standard of care doesn't mean perfect. I, right. you, know, you know, it's not absolutely. Uh, right. I think that's important for people to understand. But you know, when a radiologist graduates, you know, residency, and now you know most of us do fellowships. When you graduate residency and fellowship, and you become board certified, that doesn't mean you're a hundred percent of the time, you know, going to catch every single thing and absolutely. every single diagnosis. So, I think that's one important point. You know, that these. Uh, models, if they make the standard of care, they're, they're not going to be perfect. They're not going to catch every single right. possible diagnosis. Maybe they right. will someday, but at least, at least I imagine the initial ones we use in that, in this type of uh, way we're talking about will probably not be at quite that perfect at that level. Um, so I think that, you know, I think sometimes we're too hard, uh, really on our AI models, you know, we're, we're going to expect them to be perfect. They're not going to be perfect. Um, so, you know, how much uh, uh, error are we going to allow these, uh, you know, these, these, these models? Uh, only, only time will tell. That's one of the very interesting things, by the way, about watching AI develop, because we're going to meet up with a lot of these challenges, bumps in the road. You know, how accurate does the model have to be? Uh, and as you said earlier, when there is a bad outcome, when maybe there is an error, how are we going to apportion out? liability uh, among all of the parties who might be responsible. No, definitely. Definitely. And I think I imagine, you know, obviously time will tell. And I think from what I understand at this point, it'll be similar to the screening or approval process that, you know, medical devices undergo, maybe not yeah. quite as stringent, but especially as like a pharmaceutical drug. What I was thinking about this when I was reading your article is an interesting scenario would be, you know, you hear about these drugs that get approved and they go off into the market. And then years later, they find that right. there's this catastrophic side effect that, yep. they, that they caught, you know, maybe it causes severe liver damage and they didn't pick mm -hmm. that up in the initial clinical trial. In your thought, if, if there's an AI algorithm where, you know, everything looked great and maybe five years out, we find that it's, it's really, it's missing all of these critical findings that we should have that, it, you know, and we're letting it up essentially run on autopilot, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, what's your thoughts on those scenarios? Uh, great, great <laughs> question. And that's, that's another one that's on the drawing board. I mean, who knows how that one's going to play out? Obviously, 
Um, again, if we're talking about a model that's going to be as good as you, it, that is to say that can even substitute or replace you, uh, that's going to be a class three medical device as far as the FDA is concerned. That is to say, they are going to vet that device, look to the, the vendor, look to the creator and place it at the highest level of, 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 of scrutiny precisely because they don't want that to happen. You know, so let's so let's say then that uh, uh, the device has jumped through all of the the uh, FDA regulatory hurdles. Uh, it's approved. It's out there, and indeed, as you say, uh, five years, two to five years down the road, it starts messing up. And by the way, that's that's not all that unlikely because when you think about the fact that maybe I developed the model, I developed it with my own technology, with my own imaging equipment, and it's slightly different, uh, you know, from the uh, imaging equipment that you have at Emory Hospital. So there's room for a glitch there, right? I mean, and and I kind of think that's that's going to happen. Those variations are are, are going to happen. But at any rate. Uh, it, it, it's not performing, let's say, according to, uh, uh, to Hoyle, well, then how are we going to handle that? And that's uh, some of the things that we discuss in, uh, in our paper. Uh, one way of handling it, by the way, um, is, <laughs> is, is what the developers of the diabetic retinopathy model did, the IDXDR, uh, so this, this is a model that is really intended for primary care uh, offices. It looks at the, uh, the patient's retina, uh, and we're really talking about patients with diabetes, looks at that retina, and it will make a recommendation as to retina looks fine, or you know what, I'm seeing something there, and you, primary care doctor, you would be well advised to refer this physician to this uh, patient to an ophthalmologist. What uh, that company has done is they have assumed liability for any errors that that uh, model model makes. So presumably we're talking about the false negatives here. If that model says uh, this retina looks fine and it turns out that it's not fine uh, at all, the company, the maker of that model is assuming liability uh, uh, for that. By the way, that's going to be especially the case if you have these black box models. If you can't look into that model and try to figure out how that model came to the output or the decision that it did, if that's opaque to you because it's a black box model, then it would seem to me to be only logical that you'd want to put all the onus and the liability on the model designer developer because we it's just simply unfair to unload the liability on the doctor if you can't interrogate the model and you know figure out well why did the model make this error make this uh, make this mistake but really i you know what's going to be so fa fascinating for me probably uh, anxiety provoking for you is to is to watch how these liability issues, these errors, these these things are going to play out because there can be lots of these glitches, uh, these bumps in the road uh, towards as we move toward full implementation of AI five years, 10 years, 20 years uh, down the road. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that, you know, the adoption of it is definitely going to be, I think we're gonna have to let some, obviously some level of error happen. Yeah. If, if you will, or, or, I guess not, not allow, but anticipate some, some level of error to happen. And I think it's, it's, you know, thinking about these scenarios, I think are, 
interesting because, you know, obviously we deal with this with medical devices and pharmaceuticals all the time, like we were talking about. I guess, you know, you make up a great point about the black box, you know, in the sense of, I, I feel like it almost ethically, we should hold the, you know, developers of these models accountable to that, where, you know, to get this approved, we need to know how this works. Because if, yeah. you know, obviously if one of these errors happens, we need to be able to go Absolutely. back and, right. and see, and see uh, you know, what happened. I mean, that'd be like approving a medical device, you know, without really understanding how it works or, a, you know, a pharmaceutical drug with, which I guess some does happen in some scenarios, you know, if you have, you know, you hear those scenarios of cancer wonder drugs that, you know, wonder drugs in, in quotes where, you know, they cure, they, you know, significantly slow progression of disease yeah. in patients and it gets this fast track approval because, you know, many cancer patients, unfortunately are desperate for, you know, some type of right. effective therapy, but then as we all know, there can be consequences of that in the, in the end as well. And so I think yeah. it will be really interesting to see. You know, it is going to be interesting because these neural networks, you know, I mean, man alive, they're so complicated that even, <laughs> even if the model can explain itself, I'm not so sure that we're even going to be under, able to understand the explanation that the, <laughs> you know, that the model gives for us. I mean, that's, that's, that's possible. Uh, so uh, it's going to be like everything else in, in healthcare and, uh, or rather in research and development in healthcare, it will be pragmatic. It will be experimental. It will be trial and error. And, you know, at that, that's what makes it so interesting. It makes it so human. Um, uh, but yeah, there's always that element of risk. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, and, and, and AI, you know, I mean, they, they, they talk about the fourth, uh, 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 stage of the industrial revolution. You know, we, uh, we, we, we started out with, with water and then we went to, uh, uh, well, the steam engines, and then we went to electricity and then digital. Uh, and now we're in this, this last stage of, uh, uh AI. Uh, so, uh, yes, we will, we will see how all of this plays out. Yeah, you definitely. will. Your children <laughs> will. I, uh, I, I won't, but uh, but you will. You know, I'm curious on your thoughts on, you know, I, I was listening to a podcast recently when they were, ta- they were talking about AI and they were actually talking about it making a dramatic impact in primary care, actually, because they were talking about how, which is, you know, I just have seen firsthand from, you know, just doing rotations in med school and intern years that primary care is very arduous in terms of chart review. You know, you have to review a lot of medical records, you know, and, and, and spend a lot of time, you know, following lab values and things like that. And they, what they say was an interesting thing is a lot of times you only have time, like for a, if you're following right. a patient's, you know, lab value, you maybe only look at the most recent or maybe the most too recent, but they've got 20 over the course of time. And, you know, using AI models to, to go back through the charts, like you kind of what you described for radiologists at the beginning of the day, you know, you, maybe it runs overnight, you come in, in the morning, you say, oh, maybe you should pay more attention to this particular yeah. patient's lab value or this particular patient keeps complaining of this certain symptom or things like that, or physical exam finding. I guess, how do you see maybe some of that playing in if, if you know, for example, it says, oh, you should pay attention to this and not, do you, do you see it being very kind of the same principles come, carrying over or do you see maybe new dilemmas as well playing into that? Well, <laughs> you know, if you, if you believe the hype, if you read the hype, uh, given AI's extraordinary capacity to ingest data, presumably when my grandchildren go to their primary care provider 30, 40 years from now, they're going to put their medical card in a computer, you know, kind of like the way you and I put our credit cards into the gasoline tank, you know, when we go to fill up. 
uh, and presumably not only your whole medical history is going to be on that computer chip, it's going to be your family's history, it's going to be your medication history, it's going to be everything is, is, is going to be on there. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the machine will take your presenting symptoms, and it's going to run through a PubMed, and it's just going to filter and, and examine and compute all of this data, uh, presumably in a way that absolutely no human being uh, uh, can. Um, so, I mean, this is the great promise of, of AI, whether it actually is going to play out that way a century from now, I, I, who knows. But uh, again, the, the, its ability to compute just enormous volumes of data, we will see uh, whether or not that has the kind of impact on healthcare improvement that we think it should. Maybe it won't. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe Dr. Welby, and again, you can't talk to third-year medical students about Marcus Welby. They don't know who he is. You know, maybe that kind of intuition. You know, that is an interesting topic. I so I just got done reading a book called The Myth of Artificial Intelligence by a guy named Larson. And he makes a very interesting point about how AI does not think the way you think, the way I think, the way Marcus Welby thinks. In terms of AI don't, doesn't have intuition. It doesn't have, it doesn't have hunches. It doesn't play it, you know, it's 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 hunches. And consequently, uh, you know, when a patient starts presenting to a veteran doc uh, and his or her mind starts computing, starts listening to, and all those neural networks start going, what could be going on here? What could be going on here? And you just kind of get this hunch or this intuition that you know what, I think we should order this particular, I just think we should do that. And holy smokes, a lot of the time you're right. That, that That's just a very, it's a real revelation. Well, AI is not going to be able to do that. So, uh, and, and that's the point that Larson makes. So it's, 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 you know, he's saying that AI is going to be so different because it thinks differently. Also, an interesting fl uh, flip side of that is when AI makes an error, it's not going to be like a human error. It's going to be a real whopper. Uh, it's, it's been, in some instances, it may be absolutely hilarious when, when you know, when the model makes an error. But uh, you know, all of this is going to play out in the uh, in the wash, uh, and we will. Who knows? Who knows how it's going to uh, play out now. Whether, you know, whether all of that data will be important, significant, revelatory, or not. And by the way, the models might teach us some things that we don't know. You know, we, we, we might uh, have discounted for decades the importance of, for example, air quality. Uh, the 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 the, uh, the the importance, the significance, or the correlation of air quality with a patient's uh, health status. Uh, and, you know, uh, models might tell us about how important that correlation, that correlation is. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, one, one scenario I wanted to ask you about, because you, you bring it up in your paper, and, and correct me if I, if I misquote this, but it, you bring up a scenario where I think it was a stent device or some type of medical device yeah. that, that malfunctioned, and the, and the patient actually sued the device manufacturer. Right. As I guess, and I, I thought it was interesting how you discussed that. And I think if, you know, one of these errors happens with an AI, maybe summarize that a little bit for us, how that played sure. out, but then also how, and then how that would apply to if someone sued the, the actual developer of the, the, yeah, the AI, AI algorithm in that scenario. Right. Right. So, uh, you know what, I happen to have my paper right here and I can, I can quote the case for any of your, your listeners who are, who are interested. 
Um, so this was the case of, let's see, it's footnote number 23, uh, the case of Regal, R-I-G-E-L versus Medtronic. Medtronic was the maker of the, it was a balloon angioplasty device. And this case went down in 1996, I believe. And it, just as you said, uh, the balloon uh, malfunctioned uh, in uh, Mr. Regal's uh, uh, heart as he was undergoing coronary angioplasty uh, and resulted in Mr. Regal needing additional surgeries. Pretty, it was pretty bad. So the Regals sued Medtronic. Medtronic, however, had gotten a pre-market approval. That's what it's called, a pre-market approval from the FDA on their uh, uh, angioplasty device. And what that pre-market approval allowed Medtronic to do was that any litigation that was uh, initiated by an aggrieved plaintiff would not go into a state court, it would be heard in a federal court. So uh, uh, the, uh, the litigation was exempt, actually, from uh, tort litigation occurring at a state court, and it was uh, referred to a federal court. Now, if you're a plaintiff lawyer, uh, you don't want that to happen. And you don't want it to happen because traditionally, federal courts are not as sympathetic with the plight of plaintiffs like Mr. Regal uh, uh, as, as, our, as our state courts. So you want Interesting. to get case heard in tort litigation in state court. What, why is that? Um, it's because, and again, you, you have to be a lawyer to appreciate this, it's that the evidentiary rules are a bit different in federal court. Uh, the perception among plaintiff lawyers is that the recovery, if, if, if in fact the plaintiff does recover in a federal lawsuit, they don't get as much money. Uh, the, uh, the perception is that federal courts tend to be more friendly toward corporations. They tend to grant their motions a lot more than they grant motions for the plaintiff side. So uh, it's just a bit more challenging to gotcha. uh, try the case in, in, in federal court. Um, so, and, and that's, a, and that, you know, that's a big issue because obviously the first step that you got to do as a, as a plaintiff is you got to get a lawyer. Sure. Uh, and if that AI device, and here's where we're all, here's where we're coming from. The thinking is that if that developer gets that pre-market approval, that FDA pre-market approval on his or her device, you have taken a giant step to protecting your liability on that. So that even if you do get sued, and even if the plaintiff wins, he's not going to get all that much money as if he had prevailed in state court. So, you know, I mean, that's just one legal strategy that device manufacturers might use uh, to, to mitigate their their liability. And there are going to be all kinds of these, uh, uh, you know, legal maneuverings, uh, clearly, you know, that uh, the device manufacturers are going to use in order to further their costs, protect their, uh, their product and to protect their revenues. So, so yeah, I was, when I came across that, I was, I was really stunned, you know, because you would think that Mr. Regal, holy smokes, this thing malfunctioned. This is a slam dunk kind of strict liability case. Here you go. You sue Medtronic, their device screwed up. Eh, it wasn't, wasn't that easy. Wasn't that, wasn't that uh, straightforward. 
Interesting. Do you ever know, was, was the physician named in that as a defendant in that, in that case as well, or was it strictly just Medtronic? I, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but the, the, the lead defendant was Medtronic and they prevailed, you know, I mean, their, their argument, Medtronic's argument was, and this is what the whole case was about. Medtronic's argument was judge, you can't try this case in state courts. You got to try it in federal. Uh, court because we got that pre-market approval and therefore we're exempt from these particular kinds of lawsuits and they won. Uh, so I don't know what the aftermath of that is. Maybe they settled with Mr. Regal. Uh, maybe Mr. Regal never was able to advance his cause in federal court. I, I don't know what uh, uh, what happened. Gotcha. Gotcha. Kind of one of my final questions here I'm thinking of is, is you know, you brought up the, the case of when uh, things can turn criminal. I'm curious yeah. if you could ever see that happening with, with, uh, you know, you would hope it never would, but you know, if, if a physician disagree, you know, blatantly disagrees and goes right. against, you know, numerous other opinions. Reckless, or reckless yeah, is yeah. the key word. Yes, yeah. yes, thank you. Yeah, do you see that happening with an AI algorithm? No, I don't. Uh, uh, and I know where you're coming from. And let, let's face it, the whole healthcare world is buzzing about the Redondavat case in uh, in uh, uh, Vanderbilt in Tennessee. Um, and uh, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on the case, but I know that Ms. Vaught actually made uh, multiple errors there that frankly looked, looked very, very bad. She, uh, she overrode uh, uh, multiple times the alarm system that was going off that was asking her, are you really sure that you're getting the Versed here? Take a look, take a look, take a look. She never looks at the label of the Vecuronium. She doesn't uh, think to herself, you know, I've, I've got to uh, mix this with, I've got to reconstitute this Versed. You don't have to reconstitute the Vecuronium, you do. She never looks at the label on the vial, you know, where she's pulling the medicine into the, into the syringe. Uh, she does not stay with the patient when uh, she injects the Vecuronium into the IV line. So there's a whole bunch of things that she, you know, that she did here. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking uh, right now, I can't imagine uh, uh, an AI and a physician uh, uh, committing th- those multiple kinds of, uh, of errors. But, you know, uh, I'll tell you, if it can happen in healthcare, it will happen. And in, in, I've learned that after 20 years of studying medical errors. So time will tell. But right now, it's just hard to imagine that uh, a, a, an AI model might land itself, its manufacturer and uh, its uh, a physician uh, uh, in, a, in a criminal uh, uh, proceeding. Just, I, I find it impossible to imagine right now. Yeah. I mean, it would almost be like those cases where you hear of like the airline pilot purposely crashing a plane or something like that. It would almost be like someone just purposely yeah. being, yeah. like you say, it's, reckless. It's gross you know, like, negligence, yeah, right? Yeah. Gross yeah. negligence, reckless. Right. Yeah, 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 and I mean that—that—that's the the, the the whole business of the AI is to pre- absolutely to prevent to prevent something like that from uh, from happening. So, uh, uh, so if something like that would happen, uh, I doubt that it would be the AI that would be implicated in. Uh, uh, in the malocurrence. I have a hunch it would be the human operator. But you know, one thing that we didn't mention, uh, Maxwell, maybe this is a, a good point on which to, on which to end. Uh, will the day ever come, assuming that these models get so good 
that they can substitute for you. If they substitute for you, if they replace you, um, should I be able to sue a model? Not Dr. Cooper. I want to sue the model for it because Dr. Cooper never looked uh, really at the at the film. He just took the AI's word for it. You know, so so that that question is making its rounds in among tort scholars. You know, is is the day ever going to come when a piece of software becomes a person for heaven's sakes and you can sue it? You can go after it, but then where are the where are the assets going to come from? Because you're obviously going to want damages. So where, how, how's that going to happen? How is an AR model going to accumulate assets that a plaintiff can go can go after? No, I think that's a fascinating <laughs> scenario. And I think, you know, it's, you know, there's a difference between, like we were talking about earlier, treating it as a tool versus an autonomous, if you will, in that right. scenario, an autonomous right. being if with or decision maker, if you will. And, right. you know, it's interesting if, uh, you know, it would almost be kind of using the airline analogy, if you will, because we tend to, it's funny, we tend to use that a lot in healthcare is, is following the airlines, uh, airline industry's uh, way of doing things in some scenarios. But like, if you had a plane that had no pilot on it whatsoever, I think yeah. that's kind of scenarios people talk about. An automobile, no, right? How about the autonomous self-driving cars? Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. That's a yeah. great point too. You know, that if those crash, you know, who is, who is liable? Is it, you know, is it the maker of the software? Is it the mm-hmm. airline? Is it the, you know, or in the car scenario, is it the, you know, if the, Tesla or one of those other car car companies that's working on that, you know, is it, you know, that's kind of who who shares the liability is kind of an interesting thought for sure. It is. It it, it absolutely is. But you know what? I think that in all of this, uh, although, like we said, uh, over the next couple of years, the road is going to be a bit lumpy, bumpy. There's going to be glitches. There's going to be, uh, you know, some embarrassments and all that kind of stuff. I really ultimately think I'm thinking about my grandchildren. I've got six of them. Uh, I think the future is going to really be wonderful for, for them. I think we're going to ramp up this technology uh, uh, to, to the point where uh, the, the healthcare world that they have is going to be a safe one, uh, a very, very informed one, um, and, uh, and an efficient one. Uh, too. And, and also, hopefully, uh, that the clinicians, the human beings who work in that world, uh, will enjoy it uh, and, and will be glad that they chose the profession that they did. Definitely, definitely. Well, John, it's been a fascinating conversation. And again, you know, I, I uh, commend you on your, on your podcast. And, and uh, again, we'll, we'll share that with the listeners uh, and again. And so hopefully they can you know, catch more of these types of conversations from, from you and your, and your guests that you've already done. And then obviously, as you as you continue to bring them on and have these interesting conversations. So thank you again for joining us. Really appreciate I, I appreciate it. it, Maxwell. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour podcast presented by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or a review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.